Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and zero carbon goals. This week, Jeff and I were joined by Gillian Campbell of the Existing Homes Alliance in Scotland. She is a now a policy specialist, long-term housing professional, and she's been doing some really interesting work around lobbying for a more positive and progressive retrofit policy in Scotland. They've been doing some really interesting research, and she's got a lot of insight that she's able to, to bring to the table. So we talked about loads, like building policy, heating destinations, a new term for me, building trust, research, how do you motivate people, the importance of messaging, and about making markets, you know, fostering a market like through a, an enabling framework, you know, something to, to meet demand. Anyway, I don't really need to explain it any further. I'm sure you could just listen to us talking last week. All right. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Should we kick off while we wait for Jeff to, to join us? Yep. So today we are with Gillian Campbell of, well, Gillian Campbell Consulting and the existing Homes Alliance. I mean, you're a, a vastly experienced housing professional. You've been in it for decades. You've worked within local authorities and housing associations. And now, if I understand it right, you're much more policy focused than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked with housing associations and councils for a couple of decades, uh, <laughs> not that many decades, um, about 25 years um, from housing management, started out as a, as a housing officer um, through to sort of strategy development, business planning, that kind of thing. Um, I set myself up as a consultant about five years ago, um, supporting housing associations, councils, again, with their sort of strategy and policy development, carrying out service reviews, um, performance improvement, that sort of thing. I've also worked on some really interesting research projects over the last couple of years on um one on the cost of the cost to housing associations of complying with the regulatory framework and how that's burgeoning, um, particularly now with the rising costs of materials and so on. But also on the, um, I did a piece on the social housing sector's experience of and readiness for offsite construction. So I've I've worked, I've got my fingers in lots of pies, worked on on many different research projects, and um, what I've been doing over the last I still do all that work but over the last couple of years I've also been working with the existing Homes Alliance as sort of public affairs communications and, and research um, support which is a fabulous organisation and very much enjoying that work. So you've been looking into I'm, I'm sorry I'm slightly sidetracked by the the research you've been doing into off-site construction <laughs> or the oh we'll return to that later I think. Maybe well. mm. sorry, sorry I'm back now yeah. So in terms of strategy, are you talking about investment strategy for like a housing association in terms of new stock or existing stock or or everything from one end to the other and all in between? Everything and all in between. I mean, I will help them with their, their business plans and their, their corporate strategies. Um, I've recently been supporting a housing association to develop their net zero strategy, um, their corporate net zero strategy, less about their sort of asset management side, but how they as an organisation can reduce their emissions corporately. Um, so yeah, there's particular service improvement plans as well. So a wide range of ways I can support the sector. So in the time you've been working in this space, 
I'm sorry. What I'm thinking about is the reason why we got speaking to Gillian most recently was regarding doing research into retrofit strategy, or not into retrofit strategy per se, into the messaging around uh, retrofit policy, like priming consumers for for whatever happens when Scottish policy around retrofit changes over the next, I don't know, when's it due? Um, we're expecting proposals for regulations to be published, well, any minute, really. <laughs> At some point over the next few weeks, we're expecting something to be published for consultation. So in the meantime, you've been preparing? So yeah. Doing the research into, uh, and this was something through the existing Homes Alliance rather than something specifically for a, a local authority. We go possibly back yeah, yeah, yeah. a step so I can introduce the existing homes alliance because yeah, 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 yeah. that is yeah yeah. yeah 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 please do so yeah primarily why I'm here not to talk about me um okay well the existing homes alliance is a, a coalition of housing environmental fuel poverty consumer and industry organizations and we are calling for urgent action from the Scottish government in particular to transform Scotland's existing housing stock to create warm low emissions and affordable to live in homes for all so that's basically what the existing homes alliance does i am over the last couple of years have been working with the existing homes alliance to help them communicate these messages to to refine their, their messaging and policy areas and to to help them to um, engage with with politicians and parliamentarians and, and Scottish government officials and so on to, to try and get their message across. So we do, we, we work with, we work across all sectors and government um, to try and shape the policy so that it delivers the scale of retrofit needed to ensure that Scotland meets both the climate cha- um, change targets and also fuel poverty targets. So that's that's what the Existing Homes Alliance is about. I'm just thinking, Gillian, um, there's one significant stakeholder that's in terms of sustainability in buildings in Scotland, um, who I'm guessing are not part of of uh, this this alliance, um, but who could be very significantly affected in some ways by uh, your your lobbying, and that would be the the house builders in the sense that what you're talking about, you're not presumably focusing on setting requirements for. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just thinking, making the assumption with the name, given the name of the organisation. Um, this is the, the genius of my brain at work here. Um, uh, that you're that you're not relating this to to new homes specifically. However, what I'm thinking is that uh, that you would be very well placed if you're looking at recently built homes, for instance, even within your remit, to independently describe uh, the quality of what has been built, for instance, by these people and whether it's fit for purpose. Is that fair to say or not? Yeah, I mean, our focus is very much on existing homes, but, you know, exist, new homes are existing homes within a few seconds, really. Um, and we we do comment mostly on um, ex- existing homes. But I think, you know, there's been a couple of changes, important changes in legislation recently in Scotland in relation to new builds. So we've just recently had publication of the new build heat standard, which we do very much welcome. So by... 2024, um, all new buildings will have to have direct zero direct direct emissions zero zero direct emissions heating. So we we do very much welcome that. Um, so um, I um, no, what I was wondering is, to your knowledge, what's the newest 
homes you know of that are, uh, that are you know, within existing homes online, Scotland, for instance, come on up on your desk, whatever, newest homes that have required retrofitting, retrofitting. How new are the homes that are coming into your remit potentially? Well, homes that are still being built now are going to need ret- retrofitted, which is shameful. Granted, energy efficiency standards are much higher than they have been in the past. Um, So it's not so much about the energy efficiency side of things. But the fact that we're still building homes, um, knowingly putting in system heating systems that are going to have to be ripped out in the very near future is is ludicrous. Um, So yes, we do welcome this new build heat standard. It can't come soon enough, but we would have to be honest, pushed for that to go further because it still means because it's it's only those it's only um, applying for a building warrant warrant from 2024 where it's going to kick in. So it does mean we're still going to be building potentially in 2026 homes um, with gas boilers, uh, which is <laughs> nonsensical and it's yeah. costly to um, everybody. It's costly to the, the homeowner who's going to be lumbered with something they're going to have to rip out in the not too distant future. You would surely think the starting position should be like. At least don't add to the problem. <laughs> mm. know? Indeed, um, indeed. It's uh, you know that that's the relatively easy one is to sort the new build side of things. It's, it's some of the um, existing stock that's a real challenge. We should have dealt with the the easy stuff ages ago. Yeah. Are there particular areas that you focus on? Are there particular uh, you know even in terms of of uh, ages of housing or, or 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 particular kinds of properties, particular sectors that you focus most of your, or do you have to be kind of a catch-all for everything? Um, our concern is all homes of all tenures and all ages. Um, that's what we're focused on. Our members, we've got members that come from the um, housing association side, the local authority housing side. A lot of our work is focusing, a lot of our work over the last couple of years is very much focusing on owner-occupied sector because they are not represented by the likes of the, the Scottish Federation of Housing Associations and so on. So, um, and, and it's potentially the most challenging sector to, to tackle because you've got so many owners. So yeah, a lot of our focus over recent years has been on providing, trying to find solutions that will help us move forward with the owner-occupied sector, both in terms of regulation and the sort of enabling framework that we need to, to help people on their way. So is that in terms of uh, lobbying government or trying to influence government, which I suppose is the same thing, one sounds less pernicious or insidious (laughs) than the other, uh, towards providing support for owner-occupiers, or is that about addressing the owner-occupiers themselves, trying to, uh, I don't know, influence them to consider it more seriously? Our focus is very much on um, trying to influence government policy. We are not sort of customer facing, so to speak, you know, consumer facing. Our our focus is very much trying to make sure that we've got the right regulatory um, policy and financial framework in place so that it's as easy as it can be for homeowners to to upgrade and transform their transform their homes and their heating systems. Is, is part of that also trying to ensure that uh, that government or somebody is um, is putting in place the necessary systems to have something coherent from a customer facing perspective as well? Did that come into it at all? Yeah, very much so. I mean, our, we we carried out a piece of research. I'll probably, I should probably start with the regulation side of things. So last year we carried out some research um, with Louise Sutherland from RAP and Dr. Katrin Maybe, and there's a, a report called Owning the Future, which we published last year. 
And based on that, we've been pushing for the Scottish Government to introduce a fair and proportionate regulatory framework. And there's three key elements to that. Um, the first part is that we're calling for a renewable, heat-ready fabric efficiency standard um, that, that we think needs to take effect from 2025, um, with homeowners being required to undertake improvements at key trigger points like the sale um, of the home or, or major renovation. And we think that should have a backstop date of 2030, by which point all homes should comply. Alongside that, we are calling for a zero emissions heat standard, um, which would require all fossil fuel heating systems to be replaced with zero emissions systems at the time of replacement or when the property is sold. And again, we're saying that should be phased in from 2025. But there's also a third element, and you were talking earlier, Jeff, about are you focusing on different house types? One of the real challenges we've got is that 38% of Scotland's population lives in flats. And we mm -hmm. need to, how we, how we deal with people in flats and tenements is absolutely critical. So what we're calling for in terms of regulation is a, a phased approach. So, you know, first of all, we are calling for the benefits of a coordinated whole building approach to be to be considered. But we can't, um, we, we really run the risk of people living in flats being left behind because of the complexity of managing that yeah. sort of project. Yeah. So we're saying there needs to be a sort of interim standard, which is flat based. So you know, um, people would an interim energy efficiency based standard that can be can ensure the individual flat is brought up to standard. For some reason, my recording failed at this moment, so I've no idea what was said. But we rejoined the conversation. We're just reminiscing about living in Scotland back in the the nineties and early nineties. And I think back to our experience, me and Dan, um, we were where we met was um, was we went to Stirling. That's where we went to mm. university, um, and uh, we would have lived in student flats um, in Stirling. You know, um, I lived in a tenement, like a typical like Scottish tenement building. Yeah, I had um, as I've probably said, in fact, I've definitely said on the podcast before, I was in another flat in Stirling where. I came back from uh, Christmas and January in fourth year to get work started on my dissertation. And normally term would start in February, um, where it had warmed up a little bit. Um, and I was in a, like a converted uh, loft flat. Um, and I remember sitting down having my dinner in January in Stirling, um, where I wasn't just seeing the steam rise off my uh, breath, but actually off my hands. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So yeah, I know I know what you're dealing with. You know, I'm I'm I've I I've still got the 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 the, the, the psychological scars from it in, yeah. in, in that kind of climate. You know, and I know what you mean by the mixed tenure stuff because we had another student flat across the hall from us, and we had junkies downstairs and families in I think two of the other flats. I can't remember. I think there was an old lady on the ground floor who we never saw, and. I mean, I can't imagine trying to how one would approach dealing with that building at all. I was just going to say, you know, the, the mixed tenure issue is really important. I mean, you know, as I said, thirty-eight percent or so of of Scottish population lives in flats, and that ranges from you know tenement blocks where you've got maybe sixteen flats in the tenement. You could have you know numerous different owners, some owner occupiers, some private landlords, some even owned by housing associations or councils. Um, so there's real complexities there in, in terms of trying to to manage um, these you know, different interests. And but you've also got 
blocks where there are maybe six owners, all of whom are owner occupiers and all of whom know each other. So it should be much more straightforward, but it's still exceptionally complex because you've still got uncertainty about who's responsible for which bits of the building and so on. So um, even when you've got a stable population and, you know, the the bulk of tenements um, are relatively you know stable population and and you know not in the sort of condition yeah. that we've just been talking about but even then um where a lot of the circumstances you'd think were favorable it's still incredibly challenging um to deal with this which is why we think there needs to be this sort of phased approach where you take in the long term a whole building approach because you know a lot of the, the heat loss and things is going to be through communal areas yeah. but you also need flat focused um energy efficiency standards to make sure that people who are living in the the flats are not left behind whilst they wait for this longer term solution. So how are you approaching? So I mean, what you've just described there is about a a significant chunk of the the challenge is just getting people to work together. If you, I mean, I presume you know Novoville in Edinburgh. I think what Louis Dallancourt, Novoville, uh, for the listeners who might not know, it's a platform which brings the owners and occupants of uh, a multi-tenancy property, so tenements in Edinburgh in particular, I think that was his pilot study. It's a platform that brings them together to get essential works completed. So it could be just fixing the leaky roof, mm-hmm. or it could be a wholesale deep retrofit of the structure. Like I'm really intrigued by that because living south of the border in England, I used to be living in a leasehold property. And there was no way of getting all the different leaseholders together by conventional means. And having a platform like that, like a central point where you could get all the people into one space, virtual space, to be able to see the the economics of it, the options in front of them, I think it's magnificent. But like trying to get, <laughs> just trying to get anything started even, like never mind from uh, using regulation to drive it, like working at how to get people thinking on the same terms at all. I mean, it just felt impossible. Yeah, um, I mean, the Novaville project's really exciting and it's they, they, they started off um, looking at sort of shared repairs side of things. And uh, as I understand it, they're now looking at how that could potentially be broadened out to look at coordinating energy efficiency works, that kind of thing. So it's it's, it's a really exciting um, proposition. I think it it needs to sit within um, this sort of enabling framework. So, you know, I I talked a little bit there about what we think should be introduced in terms of regulation, but sitting alongside that, you know, regulation is very much one part of the picture. So sitting alongside that, we need an effective enabling framework that's going to help people to invest in their homes. Um, mm. Part of that is the kind supporting the kind of initiative that, that Novaville is looking at. Because um, really without the, the sort of enabling framework, or we, there's a real risk that people who um, can't afford the upfront capital costs can't easily access the right kind of advice and support. They're going to get left behind. So we really, you know, I said earlier that that we're calling for regulations that would require um, a renewable heat-ready standard to be um, complied with by 2030. That's, I think, slightly ahead of what the Scottish Scottish government's likely to introduce, but who knows, we'll see in the next few weeks. But even if it's 2033, which is what they were originally proposing in the, the heat and buildings strategy, it's still, that's a decade away. 
And we need people to be moving ahead of regulations. We can't sit and wait for just the stick to be doing the work. We need the carrot. We need to be incentivising people. Um, so we, we need to be making it easier by you know, tackling some of the, the known blockages and barriers um, that people are facing to, to take action. For sure, yeah. Um, I mean, um, I'm looking at finances as, as a significant part of that. Um, we uh, would have been lovely to be able to. Well, there may be scope to integrate to to involve the UK in this in some way. But we um <clears throat> we just uh, started to our kickoff meeting this week um, in Brussels at our uh, at a, the first European project that we're kind of partners on, um, uh, which is called Smarter for EU, and it's about trying to stimulate the market for green mortgages um, and. Uh, green development finance and green green loans, other kinds of green financial instruments to spark the uh, to kickstart the market or to accelerate the market for kind of verified green rating systems for 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 homes. You know, um, a fascinating thing, and we're looking at all sorts of interesting ideas, including. I was surprised to hear that one of the partners on it was talking along the lines of things that that. Our erstwhile colleague Duncan Smith would have talked about, like um, you know, financing, uh, selling energy as a service, financing um, the idea of installing a, a heat pump in someone's home, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the investor retaining ownership in perpetuity of the heat pump potentially, and selling the uh, the, the the heat as a service to the to the. Um, to the occupant, um, and while rentierism has its issues, I think, and there's a concern about that in some ways. Uh, on the plus side, the investor, in this case, all of a sudden, is, you know, interested in the long-term performance of the system. There, uh, you know, so so that which transforms because one thing we've seen, I'm sure, Gillian, that you're dealing with a, a lot. Um, so we've seen the horror stories in the in the UK, uh, more more than in Ireland, um, is cheap and cheerful. Oh, cheerful is the wrong word, but cheap, you know um, approaches to retrofit under the likes of the eco scheme or whatever, where you just see shockingly bad work being done that ends up needing to be retrofits that need to be torn down and re-retrofitted. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's a it's a real challenge. I mean, not on the um, on the cost side. First of all, the the sort of pay-as-you-go type approach, energy-as-a-service type approach is potentially really um, important because uh, you know the, the upfront capital cost is such a, a hurdle to so many people. Um, particularly, you know, we've got a lot of cases where the cost of the retrofit is potentially outstripping the value of the, the home and not far off it. So, you know, the upfront yeah. cost is a, is a real barrier. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a definite role um, for these the sort of energy as a service approach. And I know the Scottish government is looking at that kind of model. They've, they set up a, a green heat finance task force um, a while back. They're due to be publishing their interim report, I believe, sometime in the very near future. So it'll be interesting to see what they're they're recommending there. But the the as as well as the finance side of things, the 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 issue about you know trust and um, the quality of works, that kind of thing. That's that's another major barrier. Um, and one of the, the things we've been pushing alongside the, the regulatory framework as part of the enabling framework is a, a sort of hand-holding service, the, the coordination or project management support services that will help people through the, the whole process. We're, we're very keen to, to promote the one-stop shop model where, um, you know, 
get all the information and support you need at one point. Um, really keen to hear your thoughts, Jeff, on on that and how that's that's going in, in Ireland. But we, we do see that hand-holding project management part of the one-stop mm. shop services as fundamental to helping to tackle the, the sort of complexity barrier. Yeah, and it is it is it's a very important area, and we have seen some progress on it given the commitment that the government uh, has made to this approach um, and the support the significant grant funding supports that are available for one-stop shops once they've met the right criteria um, to to show that they've got the kind of uh, the mechanisms in place, the checks and balances in place from a quality assurance perspective. And it's very interesting. We're seeing different kinds of feedback uh, in this regard from different one-stop shops because they've got certain parameters and constraints imposed upon them by government and certain freedoms. One of the one-stop shops, for instance, um, Electric Ireland Superhomes, um, who are building on uh, a successful retrofit scheme called Superhomes, which Tipperary Energy Agency developed, um, and then that's partnered with a big utility, Electric Ireland, um, to to roll this out. Um, but there, they have uh, restricted the parameters of what you can do in a retrofit more than 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 they're asked to by a CAI by the state. Um, so they they mandate uh, you have to have a heat pump. I mean, it's unsurprising that an electrical utility is supposed wants people to put in, uh, you know, a, a electrically powered kind of heating system. Um, uh, you have to have air tightness, you have to, up to a particular point, you have to have mechanical ventilation. I'm delighted that they've linked those two things as well. Uh, you know, the, the need for purpose provided ventilation and, and, and good air tightness and then insulation where you can. And then the, and then all of it has to be designed properly. The heat pump has to be the heating system. The heat pump has to be designed properly, uh, to ensure that, 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 it, that it will work. Um, and then the other one, um, the other one stop shop I'd be closest to would be Core, who are an insulation manufacturer, um, in Cavan. Um, and, just a very interesting company, very well-run company, um, and um, I've heard very good stories um, from people who've gone with them. I've, I've been impressed by the quality of the work that I've seen from them, and what they're not—they seem to be preventing because they would be then working with contractors, for instance, to do the works. Um, they are keeping an eye to prevent price gouging because that is at the at the at present in Ireland with our one-stop shops. That is the big issue: the price gouging. Um, we're seeing crazy stories about some contractors coming in um, and uh, and quoting just absurd figures. Um, and I heard a story yesterday of a contractor. Now, it's meaningless unless you know the specifics of the project, I suppose, but uh, putting in a quote of 110 grand and um, for a deep retrofit and then the punter going... Uh, talking to a to a friend who was an expert who queried it and they went back to the contractor and they carve supposedly 35 40 grand off the off the, <laughs> off the quote without changing it supposedly uh, well so i'm led to believe you know so, so what are there repercussions then you know what sort of checks and balances are in place to ensure that doesn't happen or is, is that a gap at the moment yeah I'm, i mean there is auditing happening i don't know uh, the answer to that um but it's my bloody podcast Hang on a second. I gave her permission for this before. Like we conspired over this because I think the, the one-stop shop idea, it is I mean, it's something that's sort of mooted as something everyone would like to happen, but the only place we can access like real life case studies, as it were, is Ireland, and presumably through you and your publishing gossip network. Yeah. Like it's it's really useful. Like I keep seeing 
So I, I saw a story in The Guardian yesterday or day before about how uh, fixing, retrofitting uh, the UK's piss-poor performance homes could add billions to the economy. And the moment you start doing that, that's when the shysters come out. Yeah, I know. That's when the people who are going to mug the system off appear. And that's well, they're already, they're already there, though. I mean, look at the spray foam companies who are uh, hounding people, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I've a case, Selencourt, one of our journalists was talking about this a, a while, like a year ago or more, just the the, the tenacity uh, and the the kind of the, uh, you know, the, the kind of letterbox marketing and stuff and the aggressive kind of marketing that you get from companies in this space um, who very often haven't a notion what they're doing uh the 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 contractors you're talking to and they're they're doing damage to buildings but selling it as miracle cures you know so it's um it is it is a worry you know it's a risk but i mean there's there's also so many good examples emerging in in scotland even um where you've got um the likes of local home retrofit, which I'm not sure if you've come across yeah, yeah, yeah. them, but it's this community um, a cooperative approach where they're, you know, there's something there that's almost like the basis of a, a one-stop shop, or certainly the the sort of project management element of it. And um, we've also got one of our members, uh, ChangeWorks, who um, are launching a, a sort of one-stop shop type or project management. Uh, support service you know there's a, there's a real there's a business opportunity so yes you have to be careful of, of of the con merchants but there's also a real business opportunity for a high quality service uh, that people will be willing to pay for um and you know th- th- it will take time to get there but that's where we think that the the scottish government uk government um, and other governments in other countries um, need to step in and be making sure that there's a, a sort of enabling framework there, an environment there that supports these sorts of businesses to develop. Because it's it's not necessarily something that we think the the, the government should be running or leading. It's, it's, it's not feasible or necessarily desirable. Mm-hmm. But there's a real business opportunity there. So with the right sort of conditions in terms of policy certainty, regulatory certainty, flexible financing and things, you know, it, it can come together. Yeah, I wonder as well, I mean, I think one of the roles of government has to be to have oversight and, and you know, like what, what I'd be worried about if too much power is handed over to, to these kinds of organisations is what their, their technical understanding of the issues will be, what parameters will be placed on, on, uh, on the kinds of works they're trying to do, um, uh, you know, because um, you'd see stuff happening through some kind of bigger contractors um, that might look credible at the uh, you know, to the to somebody, people who are new enough to the sector or whatever. And then you see kind of shocking looking details on thermal bridging, or, you know, uh, that'd be one of the obvious ones, uh, so thermal, thermal bridging or, 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 or potential kind of for not protecting the, the 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 fabric from from the elements from the from a weathering perspective that kind of crack you know it's tricky i suppose uh, the the long term the potential for long term relationships is what can change that though as you said earlier if you've got a situation where um the whatever company is doing work has some sort of stake in the outcome so one yeah. one of the things that we, we did some um, research last year with energy saving trust to help us to develop our customer journey proposals and um one of the uh the key 
elements of that, one of the, and what we now see as one of the key building blocks of creating successful customer journeys, is that there needs to be this sort of post-installation monitoring and support. Um, yeah. And that needs to be absolutely fundamental. That needs to be, you know, at, at the core yeah. of, of the, the customer journey. Um, so we need to, you know, and there's sort of two aspects to that. One is making sure that the, the people who are living in the house understand how their house works now um, that it's got this new heating system and is, is you know highly energy efficient and so on um, so there needs to be that sort of support to make sure people know how to live in the house but also things do go wrong sometimes we need to make sure that there is easy access to redress when things do go wrong so you know maybe that's part of the the sort of whole one-stop shop approach and I think as I understand it in Ireland there is some um, sort of post uh installation monitoring of, of works. I don't know how extensive it is, but I do think that absolutely has to be at the heart of whatever we go ahead. Yeah, yeah. and there's a QA approach, um, you know, uh, which, which which occurs afterwards as well, which is pretty pretty rigorous. Uh, at least, you know, and it annoys some contractors. Some of it might, so, some contractors complain about it being focused on kind of tick box stuff, you know, that can happen at times. What, I, what I'm always worried about with a lot of this stuff, the only way around this is by building in a, re- a relationship, a requirement for a competent designer uh, to design the measures. You know, um, um, I want to see the people who are really nerdy about the detail of this stuff. You know, the, the, uh, the people with expertise in in in, in understanding um, building physics and retrofit. Um, I, you know, there are people who the kind of people who, when they spot a dodgy looking detail, will immediately know. You know that there's something wrong there. Um, mm. There has to be a role for those kinds of people in these projects. You know, it's absurd that you're suggesting that as a like. You know what you need? You need experts and people who are good at the job, <laughs> and people who are going to yeah. try and do a good job. That's what we need to find. Where can we find them? Like it's a preposterous set of circumstances, and like I think it's really interesting. So I was talking with uh, an FD, uh, uh, a housing association, last week. And we were talking about how ill-prepared. So them uh, housing associations or RSLs, just as an example uh, of a, a kind of retrofit consumer, how ill-prepared these guys are for understanding fundamentally what the issues are, like from a social perspective, from a fabric perspective, and from a cost perspective. Just to be clear, I'm listening back editing this. I want to make sure it is understood that I don't mean everyone within a housing association or an RSL. There's loads of people who know exactly what they're on about, who are doing amazing work. I'm talking about the finance people, primarily. And to be fair, not all of them, just in case it pissed anyone off. There's loads of people out there who know exactly what they're on about, doing great work. Right, cheers, back to it. And when I say cost, I mean both capital and operational expenditure. They just haven't got a clue. So instinctively... When Jeff says, I want a finance person to own the heating system in your home and you pay them, uh, you lease it from them long term. So you're on the you're always on the hook. But instinctively, I recoil from that. Yeah. yeah. But, but I take two seconds to think about it. And I think, well, who am I on the hook to? I own my own boiler, but I'm on the hook to the potentially the installer if I bought it on the never never. Or the gas engineer, who I don't know. I mean, I used to have a brilliant one in Bromley, who uh, he charged me less than he quoted on more than one occasion. Like he was magnificent. 
Um, so if anyone's in that area, I'll, I'll get in touch. I'll happily pass on the details. He was brilliant. But like, if I can, if I don't have to pay my energy bill, I just have to lease the the system, like, and the people who install the system have a vested interest in it running efficiently and effectively, like not overclocking it, like run it in the most efficient manner to make it run for as long as it can. Like, oh man, all of a sudden I'm interested. And just thinking about that basic oversimplified version, really we need to start thinking about that at a much larger scale. So when you're talking about someone like uh, what Chris Carius is doing at Local Home Retrofit, where they're trying to find a way to pull a community together to uh, commission works at scale or get an RSL or like a, a, a recently built housing development. Like in the case of, uh, there's the case in Ireland where a heat pump, a set of heat pumps were installed in uh, a new development, which are all being replaced how many years later, Jeff? About seven years, yeah. yeah. Seven years later, they've all got to be retrofitted, replaced. And the cheeky beggar who installed the first lot is pitching to do the work for the second. <laughs> like, we need to be thinking quite differently about how we procure the work and how we finance it. Because, like, the old model, I mean, it's perverse, but it ain't going to work. Like, where I'm saying, so I just looked it up, that study, citizen, Citizens Advice, or Citizens Advice Bureau, as they used to be known, they're saying fixing UK's homes could add 40 billion to the economy. If the government just weigh in and say, here's the money, then that offers those horrific, perverse incentives for the fast money makers, the people who just come in and just do terrible work and get out fast. Mm-hmm. So like your spray foam insulation, your snide spray foam insulation people, Jeff. I think most spray foam insulation, I'm sorry, is to, to say is snide. Uh, you know, well, like I mentioned before in the on the uh, in the podcast, the research that we published in this regard that that has prevented us from being able to promote it anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. Around, around uh, off-gassing of VOCs that are responsible for for, for birth defects and male fertility reductions and so on, and no adequate answer coming from spray foam, the big brands that we spoke to. So I don't say these kinds of things lightly, and I'm not even talking about the the, the banks and the insurance companies in the UK starting to move away from insuring. Uh, you know, uh, from taking on 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 properties with uh, with spray foam, you know, because yeah. I know it's possible to apply spray foam correctly in that regard, but I haven't had any. Was very underwhelmed with the responses I had to the spray foam companies to that issue. Well, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Again. No, we don't need to, but yeah, we, we, we covered that with Beth Williams. I, ju- I just don't want to suggest uh, by implication that that <laughs> that, uh, that spray foam is ever acceptable. <laughs> Jeff Jeff definitely doesn't think it's okay. But um, all right, getting back to the point, like we've got to look at very different ways of approaching all this stuff. Absolutely, and and that sort of collaborative approach to to procurement, for example, is is one way. And I'm not I'm not talking just about um, people coming together for bulk buying purchases, although that absolutely has has a role to play. But you know, the, the sort of entering into longer term relationships with um, manufacturers with providers with suppliers is is a way to make sure that you have got they they have got a long term stake or interest. You know whether it's the um, 
heat as a service type model or whether it's more focused on the energy efficiency side of things. You know, one of the, um, it's going off a wee bit of a tangent, but one of the pieces of, of work I was involved with, it's, it's not um, existing homes alliance stuff, but I was doing some work on housing associations and local authorities' appetite and readiness for offsite construction. Um, there's a really interesting project going on in the southeast of Scotland where uh, six local authorities are collaborating to look at um, increased use of, of off-site construction. And one of the key elements of that is not just about the off-site construction, but it's about mm. the, the approach to procurement and the, the whole business model. Um, so the, the idea is that you've got um, a longer term relationship between the, the councils and housing associations as well, potentially, and the, the house builder who um, they, they jointly design based on a sort of very limited number of archetypes. They design in the, the, the performance of the building and then the, uh, there's a sort of whole performance monitoring framework in place so the, the house builder has a, has an interest in how the buildings actually perform at the end of the day and how mm. the people who are living in them um, are, are benefiting in the longer term. So there's so that's happening in terms of new builds um, and that also needs to, I think, be happening in terms of the whole retrofit side of things as well. Mm. Isn't it? It's like, you know, I think first first of all, we need to get to a position where where the industry understands that this is possible. In other words, that you don't have to be you don't have to be in a situation where you have where you should just cut and run once the building's finished uh, and uh, and don't answer the phone. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, it's possible to produce a, a, a service that is uh, so good, um, as, you know, bec- not just because you're good at your work, but because there's a good building physics basis underpinning the stuff that you're doing that uh, you can actually countenance the idea of uh, or countenance the idea of a, of, of a business predicated on an ongoing uh, involvement in the property. Well, see, see, this was the, this was the really, the really interesting insight I got of that conversation with the financial director. Like he was saying he'd found ways of financing large-scale works. You've got the relationships with deals of exactly that sort that you're describing. Like, you know, this is serious, heavy-duty, akin to deep retrofit following on with energy as a service or comfort as a service. I think it might have been framed. But this was presented to a board who just dismissed it out of hand because it was so different to what they were used to dealing with. It needs some people to do it first. If, if there's some big successes, then they'll all follow, you know. But I mean, this this leads on to, I mean, the, the, the core of the reason why we were speaking with Jillian in the first place about how, how do we convince people? I mean, from a, a person who has worked in marketing and communications for a long time, you know, my answer to everything is messaging. It's my personal hammer. But I mean getting changed like this on a personal level or at scale or an institutional level it's telling people the right things in the right order to get them to i mean it's not even about changing their minds it's getting them to open the minds to entertain to countenance considering it in the first instance absolutely and i think um you know we're expecting uh proposals for regulations to be published soon in in scotland um but What's absolutely urgent is that we need a, a sort of national awareness raising campaign, and um, so people are warmed up to the fact that they're going to be told they have to, um, you know, increase the energy efficiency of their home or, or 
change their heating system. Um, the Scottish Government is planning to publish a public engagement strategy at some point this year, which is, is great. But what's absolutely critical is that we get the messaging right on that um, you know, getting homeowners on board with the transition to net zero, it's, it's not going to be um, necessarily particularly easy. So getting the messages right is, is crucial. You know, we know that the vast majority of homes are owner-occupied. Uh, so getting them on board is, is absolutely essential if we're going to meet our climate emissions targets and also you know, tackle the real fuel poverty challenges. We um, actually commissioned best built environment smarter transformation to explore what the messaging needs to look like um, if we're going to engage homeowners and get into net zero in relation to homes um, and they've they've just they were just coming to the end of this piece of work oh, which we'll be fun. publishing shortly uh, we worked with their comms team on this and it's it's, it's a really um, interesting piece of work that we we will be uh, sharing it shortly it's just it's some final tweaks at the moment and um, but we'll also be sharing it with the Scottish government because it's, it's so important as I say that we get the messaging right and um, that we decided to commission this piece of work to try and help the Scottish government you know they're, they're doing a great job in many respects but they've got a lot on their plate so that's what the oh, yeah. alliance is all about it's trying to sort of provide solutions where we can. Um, so what, what they did was they, they did a bit of desk-based research and um, looking at various behaviour change models, trying to learn lessons from various different types of campaigns, behaviour change campaigns that had been both successful and unsuccessful. Um, but they also did some direct stakeholder with owner-occupiers and held stakeholder sessions and so on. And some of the key findings are, are, are quite interesting. First of all, and this goes back to what I was saying about the importance of regulations, we need absolute clarity on what it is that we're communicating. You know, we, there's a real danger of sending out confused messages. So we do need early sight of regulations and standards, or there'll be confusion over what the next steps. Well, we need to. I mean, ideally, I, I would go a stage further uh, and say that we need to think about the construction of the even the wording in the regulations. I know this is. I know they have a specific function legally and stuff, but I'm, I'll give you an example. Um, Hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but um, when I when the Greens were in government in Ireland previously from 2007 to 2011, I chaired their policy committee on buildings. Um, and one of the uh, the last kind of residues of, of of that time, we got um a Canadian uh, sustainable building consultant and architect called Jay Stewart to chair the building regs advisory body, which is a body that was set up to advise an industry committee to advise the minister um, uh, for the environment at the time. Uh, for uh, on on building standards, um, and Jay, one of the things that Jay was pushing for um, was to kind of bring in the kind of the campaign for plain English um, into building regulations. Now they have specific legal requirements that they have to to, to write, so they have to lawyer the things, obviously. Mm. But we're dealing with an industry where literacy levels are patchy, you know. Anyway, um, so um, and we're, and in our regulations. You know, I look at the the language in it, and it's stuff like um, uh, where reasonably practicable and stuff like that. And I think that I mean, that's just come on. You know, you've got to find a way to 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 put this stuff in across across. Maybe it doesn't have to be the actual regulation or the guidance document uh, itself. Maybe it's uh, you know the, the the technical guidance document. Uh, maybe there's another way of conveying this suspicion or, or an, a, a, an attempt to try and engage at the at the core of this stuff and find a way to. Whether it's through uh, paper documents, whether it's through video content, whatever, but uh, you know, we've seen. I I think part of the problem is in Ireland we've had 
uh, government departments where uh, and the sections of government departments dealing with these things where they're under so much pressure and they're so behind on getting the regs written that they don't even have a chance to think about, you know, um, other than the bare minimum of their kind of dissemination requirement that they do that they have to do for it. Um, and, and then they move on. Uh, so, you know, and you end up with an, with a regulation that the industry hasn't even heard of in some cases properly, let alone understood, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're starting off uh, at a massive disadvantage. So uh, you, you just like to think that that has to, we have to do better and communicate these things uh, and, and think about it from the outset, you know. Absolutely. And I, I think you know, it can't be beyond the wit of many, many lawyers that are to, to come up with sort of readable understandable um legislation that is watertight and understandable to 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 the bulk of people but um yeah there's, there's the the messaging is absolutely critical and i think you know one of the other aspects of what, what the research is suggesting is that we need to be building that link between um the sort of one of the primary motivators which is about saving money um and a sort of more secondary to some motivator which is tackling climate change Apparently about 85% in Scotland agree that climate change is a major issue and most believe that they do have a role to play in tackling it. So if 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 that's the case, if the vast majority of people do feel they have a role to play in tackling it, if you can then link that to the fact that and you can potentially save yourself money and have a healthier house um, and, and feel warmer and be reducing costs to the NHS and so on, there's there's a whole load of messages there um, that that can potentially, if they're brought together in the right way, be really powerful. Um, But you need to be targeting them appropriately because, as I say, everyone's got different motivations. Um, And, yeah, we're we're still tweaking the the final version of the report, but there's some really interesting findings there that we'll share with you when it's ready. So the key thing is (laughs) communication on these matters lacks clarity. (laughs) And consistency, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, consistency... I, I mean, I don't know what you mean by that. Like the message of different people saying, giving different interpretations of it, you know, um, uh, or, or or different. The, the regs are in Ireland. Um, they're the, the, typically the, when I change the regs happens. It's 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 the installation manufacturer or whoever who will, who will promote uh, their solution, uh, and they'll they'll be the first people to explain the regs to to a lot of people in the industry. Um, and so they'll see it through through their own lens, and and then you'll have different distorted views of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're talking about like interpretation of regulations, but I mean the core the core motivational messages, and we we discussed this with Kieran Koff like uh, earlier in the year. It's climate, except I don't believe that message really works because like if climate change as a message worked, we'd have changed an awful long time ago. He described money as a motivator. Uh, but I thought what was really interesting when he was describing the work that they were doing, so Kieran Koff was talking about the, what is he, special rapporteur to yeah. the UN? No, not the UN, to the EU. He, he, the EU, sorry. He, he, yeah. he wrote, essentially, the he's written the the the, the next, the text for the next um, revisions, the next version of the recast energy performance of buildings directive. Um, so the, the MEP for Dublin. Yeah, the the bit of information or the bit of work that underpins EPC regulations and the like. Is yeah, that right. Would do, yeah, would do if you were still in the EU. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Thank <Matt>. you. Yeah. <laughs> Anniversary today, isn't it? Oh, I think it is. Yeah. I I saw that uh, 
Sadiq Khan was banned from uh, <laughs> banned by law from raising the EU flag at City mm. Hall today. <laughs> there's been various councils in Scotland where there's that debate been going on as well with some parties saying raising the flag and others no. Well, I mean, uh, sorry, the, the thing that Kieran said that was particularly interesting was the, the notion that we can use jingoism as a motivator. So well, the in anti- Italy, yeah, in Italy, that makes sense at the moment, yeah, for instance. <laughs> but the, the, Maybe the in anti- England too, yeah. Yeah, oh man, England, straight <laughs> up. But it's the anti-Russian sentiment. Yeah. Like yeah. I was... <laughs> like the, the, There's all sorts of nonsense around that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not an apologist for Putin by any stretch of the imagination, but man, careful, Dan. This is this is the way people. It's like the way a a, a gamini person would say, "I'm not being racist." But <laughs> I was thinking yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm heading down the careful. Russian brand route. <laughs> uh, no, I think uh, like stoking those fires is an excellent way to motivate people. Like, yeah. like I'm, uh, you just don't know where quite it's going to end. What uh, I would say is that's not one of the recommendations that comes out of the best research. <laughs> stoking anti-Russian sentiment. Um, Apparently what, works what, in Bulgaria. <laughs> or maybe not Bulgaria, I can't remember. I'll have to listen back. I was just going to say, what, what it does say, though, is one, one of the really important recommendations or, or comments is that the timing is critical. Um, so if we've got messaging going out where there's a call to action, there can't then be barriers to people taking action. So mm. the timing of this is so important. You get the message out there, but the enabling framework has to be ready to be able to pick up the increase in inquiries. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's going to take time for everything. We can't expect everything to be in place, you know, tomorrow, but the messaging needs to to um, grow and develop and change as the enabling framework grows and develops and changes. So it's, it's achievable. It's not... The, the real concern I have, I suppose, is that... Is such a big task, or there's so many big tasks that everyone's a bit stuck in the headlights. And oh, actually, yeah. you know, we can take baby steps. We can say, okay, we can have this part of the enabling framework in place. Therefore, we market those who, for whom climate change is a real driver. Um, if we make sure there are no barriers for them, then they can, you know, lead the way and they, you know, make it easy for them. And yeah. at the same time, we're going right. People who are in real fuel poverty, we need to make sure that we're targeting them. So we've got the financing in place. And in Scotland, we're we're, we're fortunate in that there is there are some good, very good packages in place for people in fuel poverty. Um, so you know, tackle the bits where there are relatively easy wins, and that's enabling the rest of the the framework to to build up around that. Yeah, and then then we'll work on how to get to the Brexity racists as well. How to <laughs> yeah. message it for? Well, you would be concerned <laughs> that the. Most... I tell you what, we'll send the spray film lads around to them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would be concerned that the most Brexity racists would be the Putin apologists, torn between Putin and Asimov battalion. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, it, it it's interesting about that getting the, having the framework ready and in place so you can hit the ground running. Because if my memory serves me correctly, that's been one of the critiques of the way the policies rolled, the one-stop shop uh, packages have been rolled out in Ireland. But things haven't been ready, so there has been uh, a bunch of stifled or frustrated. But it's working way better. I mean, you know, oh it, man, like, yeah, yeah, this year compared to last year, th- there was. Uh, as soon as it was launched, and it's inevitable that this is going to happen, um, so even some of the better companies in this space were, you know, leaving phone calls unanswered or whatever, because they were just massively oversubscribed, huge demand, 
uh, just not not prepared, enough the capacity to respond. But now, with a better uh, place to operate out there, I was surprised been surprised to see that they are you know, they're 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 still taking on new jobs um, and I'm trying to turn them around pretty quickly. You know. Well, the the point I was getting to there was like uh, so for for like yourself, Julian. I'm sure Jeff can introduce you to people who would be worth if you need people to be connected with people who've already run the hard yards on this yeah. from whom we can learn because thinking about collective action from uh not from a procurement level but from the provider level yeah. the supplier the contractors like folk needs to be learning from one another at that I, level I, like, I, I would very... love to be if i was a kind of a green despot right in charge um knowing what i know now from talking to from seeing what's happened and failed and Obviously, there's a massive amount that I don't know. Uh, it's a thin veneer of knowledge. You would find ways to uh, to you would find ways because one of the things that you're dealing with with one stop shops, for instance, is as I said, is the capacity issue. They need um, they need to have built up their business into a situation where they're able to where they're not going from zero to all of a sudden hundreds of phone calls and emails, uh, people demanding stuff immediately in a bloody energy crisis. You know, <laughs> so. Um, you you've got to you've got to find ways to to artificially create that capacity um, because you'll find you know and 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 that's there because we've got things like um, you know uh, social housing stock for instance where where it's possible to find the work to to to, to stimulate the work to to build up capacity among companies before they're uh, they're let loose on the on the the um, uh, you know the, the man and woman on the street who are looking for work done. You know, so I'm sure that this this answers here just takes a bit of thought and ingenuity. You know, yeah, and I mean, there's there's other countries as well. Um, you know, the, I, I've only just started reading it, but there's a, a report just come out about um, I think the Hungarian one-stop shop experience. So there's lessons from there. I think France has a, a, a sort of one-stop shop approach. So there, you know, it's it's growing in popularity across Europe. We don't need to be constantly reinventing the wheel um, it's just about you know we need to get better at sharing information yeah. and that, that goes across the board with this someone mentioned earlier that you know real lack of um, understanding in some housing associations asset management teams for example um, we need to be doing things differently learning from each other um, and uh, yeah it'll take time but we'll get there yeah yeah the other uh, actually sorry no go ahead go, go, go. another um well, the, the big barriers that I think we need to get to grips with is, is about, you know, that people need to understand what the eating destination is going to be. And that's that's one of the other big blockages. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, the first priority, obviously, is about you know, energy efficiency. And that's, you know, a relatively straightforward message you would have thought about, you know, reducing demand consumption before you reducing energy consumption before you even think about the, the heating system but then you know we also know that heat pumps are going to be essential technology for the, for the the majority and um, so we need to get much better at tackling some of the myths about where heat pumps aren't are and aren't appropriate and oh. um, mm -hmm. so that, that, that there's something there that we need to to work on um heat networks obviously are going to be a, a major component particularly in the sort of urban areas and, and flatted higher density areas um, mm. so I'm not sure what's happening in other parts of the UK but in Scotland um, councils are 
going to be preparing local heat and energy efficiency strategies. And as part of these, they're going to be zoning for heat networks. And we really need to get moving on that because, you know, for example, I, I live in a flat. I live in a, um, a flat in the centre of Edinburgh. Um, I have no idea what my heating destination is. I assume, because I know a little bit about it, that I'm going to be part of some heat network at some point in the future. But my heating, my boiler is also 15 years old. At some point in the not too distant future, right. I'm going to have to replace my boiler. Do I get a new gas boiler? Do I even consider a heat pump? Do I just sit back and wait um, for some distant, dark and distant heat network? Who knows? So there's a real need for clarity at a, a local level in terms of understanding heating destination. And one more point on this, which I get angry about, is the fact that we need some more definitive um views on hydrogen um mm. we've got a real i mean to be fair the scottish government in the the recent energy strategy um they they are fairly definitive that they say hydrogen is not going to be play a major role in domestic heating mm. but that is you know battling that view is battling against um, a very confused picture coming out of westminster in terms of the role of hydrogen plus you know a very yeah. um, vocal industry voice if you can have a vocal voice um so <laughs> yeah it's it's we there you've still got people housing associations and others thinking that at some point hydrogen is going to be flowing through our gas infrastructure therefore it will all be fine yeah i mean that's polluting how housing associations are able to act like if your grant funding is dependent on like net zero targets uh or, or carbon reduction targets and baked into those targets is the like is the need to get off gas, but it's impractical to use another another means of heating a home. Like I remember uh, speaking to one person who worked for a, a housing association who said that they were having to the only they needed to replace gas boilers immediately, and they couldn't change the whole infrastructure of the the home or the set of uh dwellings so the only thing they were able to consider was gas boilers that would be hydrogen ready because that way they could get around the the conditions that were imposed on them for accepting and spending this very very necessary money which sort of like oh man so you're narrowing the choice of measures they're able to take predicated on an absolute fantasy mm. Mm. Yeah, it's oh, man it's a right old mess um <laughs> yeah so how does one deal with all this uncertainty particularly up in scotland so i mean how are you guys planning for like schrodinger's uh building regulations um well we have been building up to this moment for some time um so we've been expecting them to be published the consultation to be published for some time so um i think one of the biggest risks we face is you know so much time has passed since we started talking about this, we should be further ahead than we are. But we are who we are, as you say. Um, and the biggest risk now, I suppose, is that it takes an age to get through Parliament and there's a, a, a real risk of, of backlash. Um, so I think what we need to be doing is making sure that we're working with all the stakeholders to understand what the, the benefits are. So, for example, we need to be working with... Um, politicians from all persuasions um to so they can understand you know what the the opportunities are for their own constituencies that kind of thing um 
I think uh, the journey mapping that you've alluded to at several points, for me, appears to be a vital piece which is all too often neglected. So looking at it from a macro level, how do we how are we going to change institutions like and how are institutions going to be able to adapt for us like what does that look like all the way down to how does mrs miggins in her one bed uh, retirement property how can she adapt her situation like what are all the steps that she's going to have to undergo and unfortunately all of these user journeys at the moment certainly in, in england feel like they're going to have to be self-driven or driven by organizations like you guys up in Scotland, the existing Homes Alliance, it feels increasingly like we've just got to do this for ourselves, all the different stakeholders in all these different industries, as exemplified by a man like Duncan Smith. I don't think people can do it by themselves, though. I think, you know, you know we were talking earlier about the, you know, the, the complexities of, of projects and the lack of technical expertise and things. That's where um, governments, whether that's central government, local government, um, irrespective of your country, there has to be a role um, <laughs> yeah. in terms of, of providing that support and guidance and creating an environment so that people maybe can come together and do it themselves. But you know, an, a household-by-household household approach is not the most effective way to do this. No, you know, I, I think the others I meant was like professionals in right. our space rather than Mrs. Miggins on her own. Like mm. Mrs. Miggins with Chris Carrius and the rest of the guys that... Local, local home, local home. Yeah. yeah i think you know that's that's exactly the sort of initiative that's going to work in a world where regulations are being are misdirecting funds towards the hydrogen lobby or not regulations where governments are misdirecting funds towards a, the 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 death of the the gas industry through its hydrogen machinations like it's it is all a madness but the journey mapping stuff, like the the understanding all the steps that folk have to take, that's yeah. the one. Um, I, I just like to throw it in. Uh, 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 we do this often enough. A hat tip to or whatever reference to uh, to the to the AECB and their their new retrofit standards. And um, they now have, I think, upwards of twenty certifiers, uh, you know, approved certifiers who cert- can certify buildings being built to their retrofitted to their standards and. The, the cognitively dissonant approach that they've taken, whereby using the Passive House software, PHP, they've got one retrofit standard, which is actually quite light on fabric, but, but, but avoiding locking out future fabric improvements and focused on, as Toby Cambray described it, uh, one of our columnists, heat pumpification, you know, and, and making it possible to, to, uh, to, to do that. So there's interesting things exa- like that. No. That's exactly what I mean. That's like journey mapping. They've mm. they've recognised. All right. So as we often say, passive house is the ultimate goal. But remarkable that we've not we've barely mentioned it at all today for a change. But like, all right. Uh, in terms of retrofit, like an NFIT standard is the ultimate goal where you don't have to spend much on energy. At the time. ideal goal. Yeah, yeah. 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 But like, that's not going to be achievable for everyone just yeah. by the very nature of the the property they inhabit. So, like having that stepped approach, that's journey mapping. Like understanding all the different steps one is going to have to take. That's yeah, similar. and the fact that you can go from—that's exactly it. The fact that they're that you you design it in such a way that you do what you can now, um, and you 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 put in place a plan so that you're not uh, locking in 
you're not so you're not locking out the possibility of doing uh, further installation improvements or whatever. So that kind of thinking, I think, is just so. But this is it. I'm like doing, you know? doing the same for uh, the initiation of one-stop shops. Yeah, like private bodies doing it, trying to get it funded by public bodies, so it so the the exorbitant costs can be mitigated to one degree or another. Like all of these different things, they need private actors doing it because the government are still so easily swayed by a lobbyist's money. But I'd love to see some housing associations and local authorities looking at things like those kinds of those standards with the stepped approaches that they that they include. As a as a way to develop a framework yeah. that they that they could, that they could apply. Sorry, Gillian. I was just going to say I do think there there absolutely is a role for government though in in providing the the framework and the infrastructure. So you know the the, the key elements for for government are about setting the regulatory framework that is clear and that needs to be done as early as possible because we you know, we have a lot of our supporters and stakeholder organizations are drawn from industry um and i talk to them a lot about what what's the single biggest thing that will help you to to scale up invest and grow your business that kind of thing and it's the clarity and certainty that comes yes. with a regulatory framework and the second biggest thing is some sort of continuity of funding so for example if you've got um, <laughs> industries working with uh, local uh, local authorities on area based projects and um, rather than have these sort of annualized programs if you've got longer term funding yeah. so people can enter, enter into longer term relationships and this goes back to the point we were making yeah. earlier about long-term stake in a project yeah. and performance yeah. longer term funding and clarity of regulations and uh, standards we've only, we've only saw that in ireland now as well we've only finally in the last couple of years because the industry's been uh, screaming about this forever um uh, we've only got to a situation where the government has found out a way to to stop just having the annual budgets for retrofit, you know, mm. uh, so that you don't have this stop start seasonal thing. And because we used to have it all, all the time that you'd find, um, you know, uh, contractors complaining that the works wouldn't, uh, the budget wouldn't be announced, um, uh, you know, un- until, um, okay, it would be announced on budget day in December, whatever, but you wouldn't actually get the allocation until March, whatever. The works wouldn't start until May or something like that, or June, and they had to be done by August, September. You know, yeah. uh, back and uh, it's a complete famine or feast. And you have to buy an extra la- subcontract out and buy an extra labor that you can't control anywhere near as well as you could if it was your own people. You know, so you, um, you foster a, a massively inefficient system. I mean, yeah. I think we're all making the same point from different angles. The reason why, like, I think we have to do it for we, the professionals, have to do it for ourselves. Is because the government has proven You're talking about the Tories. You're talking about the Tories. It's really awful. They're different governments, I think, is important well, to recognise. I mean, are there? Like, there, is, there are seeds of change in Ireland. Like, since Fianna Foyle, Fianna Gael are being contested by uh, Sinn Féin. Like, a remarkable change. Like, in the UK, we've got a government... Uh, a, sorry, in England, so the de facto UK rulers... Uh, we've got like a, a cigarette paper t- between uh, the proposals of a Starmer government and an exiting, presumably exiting, uh, Sunak government. We can talk about the the vanity of small differences, but like, yeah, but but what about Unruh and stuff? You know, is there, there, are they not? You know, they have much more ambitious kind of. They, they have much more ambitious, but they're in a mad turmoil now with the uh, with the implosion of the SNP, <laughs> like. 
I, I mean, we talk about our envy looking north at you guys because it, it is quite remarkable. But so much of what you're able to achieve is hobbled by by England. Well, go on, Gillian. What do you say to that? <laughs> um, what I would say is that the you know there are some you know, Scotland does have some really ambitious climate change targets, and these are not just Scottish government targets. These are targets that were agreed by the Scottish Parliament across all parties. And what we need to do to make this work, to make it happen over the next little while, Danny asked what we're doing to prepare for the, the forthcoming regulations. We need to be reminding the different parties that this is not a Scottish government thing. This is a Scotland thing. It's the Scottish mm. Parliament's challenge, the Scottish Parliament's targets. How can we collaborate to make sure that we've got the right legislation in place, the right enabling framework in place to make it happen. And yes, there are um, issues in terms of devolved matters and reserved matters, um, particularly in in relation to um, some of the the energy side of things. But a a lot of it can be dealt with at a Scottish government, Scottish parliament level. We need to be making sure that where we do have these powers, we're pushing forward as fast as we can and trying to put pressure on the UK government where, where, for example, on energy pricing. Electricity. Mm, awesome man, yeah. you know, massive barrier. We've got stupid numbers of people in fuel poverty in Scotland and, and across the UK. Um, and there's some easy ways to to address some of this and to support the electrification of our heat. And yeah. we need to just get on and do it. Well, that there are seeds of hope there. Since you guys hold the the lion's share of the potential for uh the generation of electricity in the UK by fossil fuel means or by renewable means. Yeah, you there is the potential for a unified parliament to make some significant change. Yeah. I'm I am appallingly jaded by the, the whole situation. It's tough just now. Politics is horrible, has been horrible for a while. Um you know, whatever pretty much whatever country you're coming from, I think. But um <laughs> no, it's, uh, no, it depends. I mean it's, people will complain like but we, you know, if you look at here, I don't want to be smug or anything like that. Um, I mean, I am. But... You can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> now we, we, you know, the the, the whole the, the nationalist stuff. It's, you know, there, there's elements of it starting to creep in in Ireland. But I look at my own constituency, for instance, and the 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 crazies who were kind of advocating for that kind of stuff. Did they came like twelfth and thirteenth or whatever? They're, they're last and second last, respectively. You know, both lost their deposits. You know, um, so. It hasn't really polluted. Well, Fine Gael probably aren't great, but you know, um, it's not always. It's not the same in every country. In Scotland, I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as England in that regard either. You know, yeah, yeah. So, making a hasty edit, uh, (laughs) we will perhaps call time (laughs) Uh, because I think we're running quite long. I think we we probably started recording about quarter past. So, oh man, thank you very much. That was really interesting. Yes, Uh, okay. uh, It was. It was great. Yeah. And uh, if you do, if it would be of any benefit, I'm sure Jeff can help you out with connections uh, on a one-stop shop level. And indeed, any of our listeners, if it would help to put you in touch with people, just Absolutely, yeah. It'd really be really good to hear um, a bit more about actual experience um, of the one-stop shop approaches. And, and, you know, there's probably whole other episodes for you in terms of the key messages work we've been doing with with Best. Yeah, I uh, I think that will be... If we can interrogate that research a bit, I think that will be a, a really interesting episode. All right. Well, is there anything you would like to plug? Or uh, obviously, you can't announce anything at this point because uh, you're waiting. You're waiting for the world to be determined. 
is there anything going on that you want to plug? Um, I think the, the only other, there's another really important bit of research that I hadn't mentioned, which was carried out by one of our members, WWF Scotland. Um, and it's, it's important because what it does show is that um, even now with the ridiculous situation in terms of electricity pricing, the installation of heat pumps will actually um, deliver savings to the majority of homes in Scotland, um, even with the, the ridiculous pricing situation. And that's where we are now. If we sort out the energy pricing, then it benefits far more people. So there's there's a, it's a really important, interesting piece of research um, carried out in partnership with Cambridge Architectural Research. And again, it's another thing you may want to consider. Oh, man, for yeah, yeah. Well, if you're able to share that with us, I think... Sure. I think that would be a very interesting episode. I've been trying to find someone to talk about wholesale pricing with. Mm. Uh, I need to get Thomas Novak on as well from the European Heat Pump Association because he he shared something on LinkedIn on this note the other day showing the map of Europe and dividing countries up by the, the ratio of gas price compared to electricity price. Um, and the UK was one of the worst um, uh, generally. Um, but, you know, uh, that's not to say that it still doesn't stack up. There are some countries where... Is on all you know where gas was only like electricity was only one point five times the cost of gas that kind of thing and, and you know you could that would just blitz it you know for, for, in terms of in the heat on saver you know yeah 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 come on and here's here's another thing actually um air to air heat pumps we never hear very much about them in yeah. the discussion about heat pumps it's always air source ground source um yeah. and you know I. I the, the wonderful um, director of Existing Homes Alliance, Elizabeth Layton, was uh, recently on some travels, which I hope she doesn't mind me talking about. <laughs> but she she was talking about the, the experience in, in Norway. And there are huge numbers of air-to-air heat pumps. Oh, yeah. And I know it's a very different type of um, architecture and um, culture and history and things like that. But there's there are opportunities, you know, I'd say probably particularly in Scotland, where you've got a lot of lighter um, weight timber construction houses where actually air tier systems might work so yeah it's it's really interesting i think um we've seen some some local authorities in ireland starting to do it um uh, replacing storage heaters with the, with their air to air where you don't have a hydronic heating system to, you know already in place or the rads or, or or whatever you know um um my understanding and i need to get my own head around this more is that this kind of stuff makes an awful lot more sense when you've got a very low energy building. Um, mm. It's um, the thermal capacity of, of air is a lot lower than that of water. So um, you, uh, you're you going to need in some cases to, to move a lot of, of, uh, of warm air to make a building comfortable. And I think it, I think it makes more sense in buildings with relatively, with, with really relatively low uh, demands, but it's a very interesting solution. And I should stop talking because I'm a little bit out of my depth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool all right well if you're able to share uh pointers to those places uh we'll stick it in the show notes and anything else uh yeah. that you want us to put in there yeah all right well thank you so much for joining us today yeah thank you're welcome and lovely thank catch you. up again um we'll catch up on secret invasion another day i think indeed we uh, will. <laughs> yeah all right well thank you for listening uh all the usual things join the ACB, join ACAN, check the IGBC as well, read Passive House Plus magazine, subscribe uh, if you're interested, check the website if you want to look. Uh, and if you're an advertiser, 
advertise because it works. Um, and talk to us. If you want to talk about any of these issues, give us a shout uh, through our LinkedIn page or email us at uh, ZAP at eiux.agency. We are getting uh, – Alex is sorting out email addresses for us soon. So there will be um, – Wow. That's, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah, finally. Um, <laughs> cool. All right. Well, cheers. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye.